0: Hello, people, and welcome to The Endless Files. My name is Brian Endless, and here are a few things you should know before listening to today's episode. In real life, I'm a college professor, but for a few years now, a variety of students and friends have been bugging me to do a podcast. If you like what you hear, I thank you. If not, you should clearly blame them. My degrees are in political science, and while I often focus on the international side in teaching, I also keep up on most issues going on in the U.S. and the world. So what are we going to talk about here? Politics, of course, U.S. and international. Economics, but I'll try to keep it light or explain it. We'll also chat about a whole lot of the social issues plaguing the country and the world. My plan is to do a kind of podcast classroom, talking about current events and the issues of the day. Sometimes I'll give one of those lecture things that professors are famous for, but I'll also interact with students and friends in an e-classroom setting and occasionally inviting guests. If I run into any of my famous friends, I'll let you know and try to have them on. What topics can you expect to hear about? A pretty big range of anything. I teach about things like international conflict, the Middle East and genocide, as well as a variety of topics on the African continent. But I also teach about the politics of international health, the UN, and international law. And lately, I've been focusing a lot of the, on the political side of economics and capitalism, both in the US and the world. If you'd like to hear my take on a topic, drop me a line. Finally, before we get to today's topic, I should let you know about my biases. If you don't already do this, I strongly suggest checking the biases of anyone you're listening to or reading, especially on politics and similar issues. If they're not willing to tell you what their bias is, consider they may be trying to sell you something. For me, I try very hard to be realistic in my assessment of the political world. In an ideal world, I'm about as far left as you get. I've studied Marx and think he is an incredible critic of capitalism, but that he also got the whole communism thing wrong but it's clear to me that the rich and corporations have way too much power and the people need to take back the government and make it work for us. I'm not a Democrat or a communist or even a modern progressive. I'm a bit too far to the left for the Dems and communists and progressives tend to be a bit too zealous for my taste. Bottom line, I think people are more important than money and that informs a lot of my perspectives. So what does all of that make me in the real world? I'm someone who wants to see results, but who also realizes that we live in an imperfect world, and we're not going to change it overnight. Our current government and economics are quite messed up, and I don't think we're either a very good democratic republic or a very good capitalist system. Our country and world just don't work for the people the way they're supposed to. I'm incredibly cynical about the world at times, but also incredibly hopeful that there are a lot of good people out there who can make things change. And in many cases, what those people need is good information and a push to get them started. This is why I teach and why I'm here. Welcome to The Endless Files. Welcome back for our second episode of The Endless Files. Today we're talking about unemployment. What is it? How bad is it going to get? And how do we get out of this corona ditch? For this show, I've asked another three of my recent former students, all favorites I assure you, to join me as students and guests. So before we go any further, let me introduce them. First off, coming back from our first episode, I won't always be repeating guests, but sometimes it just fits in really well. I'd like to reintroduce Angela Andrio. Angela, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me, Dr. Endless. Uh, let's talk unemployment.
0: Fantastic. Thank you again for being here. Next, I'd like to introduce Brian Sabath. Brian, how are you doing?
2: Thank you for having me. I always was told I have a face for radio. So thanks for having me on, Dr.
0: Endless. I have no idea who told you that, and it may or may, be, may, or may not be true. So, uh, you know, we'll figure that out as we go along. And my third and final guest for today, Julia Sosnifka. Julia, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation.
0: Fantastic. Thank you all for joining me today. As in our first episode, this podcast is going to be be in a modified classroom style. I'll introduce things and kick it off with some info and setting the tone on the topic. Then we'll move into questions and classroom discussion with me pontificating as called for and my guests interrupting as needed. Unemployment. Unemployment is one of the biggest things in the news these days. We'll start with a brief outline of what is meant by unemployment, then move on to how coronavirus has made it worse. Talk a very small amount about minimum wage, then a bit about racism, youth, and unemployment. Following that, we'll look at how we might be able to get out of this ditch And how a combination of coronavirus and government inaction or malfeasance has put us here in the first place. So what is unemployment? It's talked about in the news a lot, but most people really don't understand it very well, particularly if you haven't been through the system. And frankly, people who have been through the system don't often get it either. Unemployment is supposed to be part of what's called a social safety net. Social safety nets are things that governments put in to help those who are left behind by the economy. We live in a capitalist economic system, as most of the industrialized world does. And in that capitalist system, there are always going to be winners and losers. That is a part of the system. Some of the best governments in the world, though, set this up with social safety nets that not only protect those who are left behind by the capitalist system, but that let them rejoin that system, that give them what they need to get the benefits out of a capitalist system. So let's talk about the United States specifically. Who is among the unemployed? one of the things most people don't realize is unemployment does not count everyone who doesn't have a job. There are a bunch of rules that deal with getting unemployment insurance, getting access to unemployment payments. You have to be out of work through no fault of your own. You have to meet minimum job earnings and tenure in that job. You have to be actively seeking work. You can't get unemployment if you quit. You can't get it if you're a part-time worker or a gig worker, or if you were self-employed. And one of the big things that people don't realize is unemployment rules vary by state. The states get to determine the rules. So for instance, some states are okay and give you unemployment benefits if you leave to care for a sick relative. That's pretty damned important in these corona times, while others do not. You can't leave to pay to care for a sick relative. If you do, you don't get your benefits. Numbers wise right now, 40 million plus Americans are unemployed, 36 million or more of them over the past two and a half to three months. But the real number of un-Americans not working is much higher. Those are the official numbers that fit the official categories, Counting those who are underemployed, and we'll talk about them in a little while, there's 150 million people in the workforce. And right now, a government estimate says that just 51.3% of those 150 million people have jobs. This is the lowest number on record. It is an insane situation that we're in. Another thing I want to talk about before we go to the guests is... What, how has unemployment changed over time? And how do we look at unemployment? Perspectives on unemployment in America are really freaking important. And they are often very political and based on the political framing that you see, the information that you get. So in most countries in Western Europe, for instance, it's understood if you're unemployed, you had some bad luck, you had some bad issues on a job somewhere, your job was cut out and you can't work anymore and you need help to get ahead. In the United States though, since the 1980s, it's been looked at as a bad thing. People on unemployment are often looked down upon. This actually started with Ronald Reagan and his administration. He brought in a very particular perspective on unemployment. Reagan was the first U.S. president to say that the unemployed were lazy. He suggested that they should get a job at McDonald's if they were unemployed. Never mind that McDonald's jobs don't pay enough to survive on, and unemployment pays more than McDonald's jobs. Now, somebody might say, well, unemployment shouldn't pay more than a job at McDonald's. Yeah, how about thinking about it the other way that maybe McDonald's jobs need to pay a living wage and that's the problem? It's not that unemployment pays more, it's that minimum wage jobs pay too little. But what started to come out is the question of is this the job seekers' fault that they're unemployed? Is it some flaw that job seekers are unemployed or is this society's problem? Reagan also was the first one that I know of to pad the unemployment stats. He made things look better. Before Ronald Reagan, the military was not included in unemployment numbers. They didn't count toward who was unemployed. Reagan instantly lowered unemployment by several percentage points when he just declared through an executive order that the military should now be counted in unemployment numbers. That meant that a couple million people were added to the employment rolls overnight and it made his numbers look better. These are the types of games that people play with unemployment. So What should unemployment do? It should help people out in unfortunate situations where they can't find a job. Ideally, it should help them find a job. But this is on a state level. And in many states, this is completely missing. And it shouldn't punish them if they do find a job, if they end up making less money through finding a job. Who's normally eligible for unemployment? Unemployment gets you 26 weeks of eligibility. In Corona times, it's extended 13 weeks and uh, government did pass an extra $600 per check. So that is a benefit. But the other problem in Corona times is there's more paperwork. There's more people being rejected and the new expanded programs have never been available for many of the people who are now unemployed. And now we're starting to come out of the corona ditch. States are starting to reopen up one at a time, whether that's a good idea or not. But we're seeing problems with unemployment. People are now being forced back to work, sometimes with their safety at stake. Some of these people are immunocompromised. Others have relatives at home that they're taking care of. Others have young kids who don't have school or daycare. And in many states, if you don't go back to work, you can't stay on unemployment. You have no choice but to go back to work. In addition, going back to work is bringing a danger to more people. And one of the sad things that's been coming out is many private employers are now requiring contracts from employees who come back to work. And the contract says the employer can't be blamed for any coronavirus-related illness that puts you out of work afterwards. You can't sue your employer if they have some type of misfeasance there and you end up getting sick at your workplace. So all of these are extra complications. I wanna stop listening to myself talk for a minute and go to some discussion. Let's start with Julia, what do you have for us, Julia?
3: I was just gonna bring up how a lot of these issues aren't considering the immigrant communities either. They are not only such a vital contribution to our societies and our economy, but now they're also scared of applying for these unemployment benefits because they don't know if they're putting themselves out on a radar. And they aren't able to then, I guess, not only help themselves and, and their families, but they're also, we're, we have to take into consideration the remittances that they send out to their families. So it's it's just kind of like a, a wave of effects that happen and not everyone's thinking about that. So that's really important to consider during these times too.
0: Absolutely. And it's not as if illegal immigrants can get unemployment. They can't. But we're talking about frequently legal immigrants who are afraid of the government. Perhaps they have some illegal immigrant relatives who are living with them, or they just have fears based on hostility against immigrants that the government will be acting against them. And you're absolutely right. Those remittances, those payments that they often make back to their families at home are another thing that's suffering in this time. Good comments. Thanks. Brian, let's go to you.
2: So uh, not to make you feel like a politician, you may or may not like this, but um, um, how are people making more on unemployment than at their jobs or like the jobs that they would have? And like, how do you kind of argue, I think probably against people more on the right who are saying like, well, they're going to stay on unemployment if they're making more money from the government than from their own jobs. So how does that kind of explain like the amount of unemployment that you uh, get from the government?
0: Sounds like it truly sucks, doesn't it? That's one of those nasty situations. So if you were in Chicago or New York or San Francisco or other major cities, you're probably not making more on unemployment than you were making in your regular job because you have a higher cost of living. Although there may be a few people at the low end who are. What we find, though, is people in rural areas, people in small towns sometimes had jobs that paid very little and they were just barely getting by or they weren't getting by and they might have been on additional government benefits too or they might have had many people living and many people having salaries in their houses and what's happening for some of these people is that extra $600 per check in unemployment money is actually giving them more money in pocket than they would have had otherwise. And again, I want to put this in terms of framing because you're absolutely right. There are people in the GOP who are saying, you see, these lazy people are taking advantage of the government. Perhaps we might consider that these people were in jobs that didn't have a living wage to start with. And maybe there's something wrong with those jobs that we need to be dealing with in the bigger picture if they're actually able to afford to live now and unemployment is the only way that they can afford that. Now, also in most of these states, they're getting kicked off unemployment if they don't accept their job back, if they were furloughed and don't take their job back. So it's not like they have much of a choice. What's ending up happening is they have to go back to work and take less money going back to work. If nothing else, that's not a well-designed system. We could have designed that system much better. Angela, you had something to add too?
1: Yes, uh, you asked a very important question. You asked who is eligible. Now normally, prior to becoming unemployed, applicants must have earned sufficient wages working in covered employment during at least two calendar quarters in a two-month period in order to qualify for benefits, which means that new entrants to the labor market, such as college students, for example, have no chance at receiving unemployment benefits. And now the same goes for the self-employed and the independent contractors, with the logic that they have not worked in covered employment positions, which was a requirement. Now, post-pandemic, gig workers, self-employed individuals, part-time workers, and other categories that normally would be ineligible for uh, unemployment insurance will now qualify. And that might seem generous for a lot of people. They may say finally, especially considering that the last major unemployment insurance reform took place in 1976. But actually, our employment insurance system as we know it continues to remain technologically outdated. It has yet to adequately manage the variety of ways that self-employed individuals or gig workers receive and document their incomes. And for me personally, in navigating the bureaucracy of unemployment benefits for my immigrant family, which does consist of independent contractors, you know, it has become especially clear how difficult the government makes it for the average citizen to receive unemployment benefits uh, in times of crisis. First of all, virtual assistance has become impossible. You not only have confusing automatic phone menus, you also have the constant message that due to the high volume of callers, you cannot be assisted. In addition, demands are not clear, important information is overlooked, such as previous work history, and no comprehensive set of instructions has actually been given to the public. As a result, it may take several weeks or even months to qualify for unemployment benefits. When most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and that don't really have a safety net as you claimed, it's very clear that you know, this is especially problematic and the Congress must immediately enact at least some type of legislation that helps address our outdated un- unemployment uh, insurance system.
0: Thanks, Angela. That's actually an enormous amount of what I was hoping to cover on this, and I think you said it very well. I want to briefly go to Julia, if you had a follow-up to that, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the things that Angela just went into.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with everything Angela said. I mean, growing up in an immigrant household, a lot of your work very much is independent work. You come here, you start your business, and you continue working, and not only is that being not considered, there's also less consideration towards college students just because some of them work multiple jobs, they live paycheck to paycheck, as she said, but they aren't qualified for unemployment just because of their federal work study, since like college institutions don't play or not play, excuse me, uh, pay for um, unemployment insurance taxes. So they aren't able to qualify just because of that reason. And so it's just, Again, you're thinking, people are thinking more about the economy rather than the lives of the people that live, breathe, work, and do everything here. And it's just, it's not fair to those people, especially when they put their heart out for it.
0: Excellent. And I want to follow up a little bit here on what you all said, and particularly some of the more in-depth points that Angela made. The limits on unemployment are significant, and the system can be Byzantine to go through and figure it out, and it was slapped together so quickly with the coronavirus additions that it's hard to say, it was hard for people to actually get into the system. So what are we looking at? People who aren't counted, people who are underemployed. Those who had very small jobs, part-time jobs, and seeking better employment, they're not even counted in the unemployment numbers, and they have a very hard time getting unemployment. People who are on public aid or living in poverty situations and getting welfare-type payments aren't able to get unemployment. And then we have the people who are employed, and some immigrants, some non-immigrants, gig workers, the self-employed, never qualified before, and they qualify now. Well, here's the problem lots of gig workers and college students in particular are getting screwed in these categories too. Lots of gig workers and college students don't even make enough money to have to pay taxes. They do not legally have to file taxes yet to get the unemployment benefits and to get the payments, the $1,200 payments from the government, you had to have filed taxes, which first means you had to go to the IRS and file to say you didn't have to file taxes and to get your name into the system. Then, if you wanted to claim unemployment, you had to go to unemployment, you had to sign up for unemployment, and be rejected for unemployment. And only after you were rejected as a gig worker or self-employed could you enter into the new system and hope that you would get unemployment out of that. One of the weirdest things that's coming out of this is in a number of the states that are reopening, we're hearing story after story of someone who spent four or five weeks after being furloughed trying to apply for unemployment. They finally got through the incredibly Byzantine system. They finally got through the being put on hold, never being able to get through on a phone. Their unemployment was finally approved and then their furlough was over and they were called back to work because their state was reopening, and they never got any unemployment benefits during that time. The lucky ones had some savings or something else that got them through, but food pantries are seeing enormously greater numbers of people going to them. Aid organizations are having record requests for aid, in part because we're not handling this incredibly well. So let's move on a little bit from there. And um, thank you all for your comments. That was fantastic. I want to very briefly talk about minimum wage, only because it came up in Brian's question, and it often comes up with this issue of how much money are people actually making? And how is it that someone can make more money on unemployment than when they were working? One of the big discussions in our country is, what should the minimum wage be? Right now, we still have an incredibly low federal minimum wage. There's the fight for $15 an hour. Should we raise the minimum wage? Certainly a very partisan issue. I would say the more core question is, how do we get to a living wage? What should we be doing in this country? And I'm gonna challenge us and challenge politicians and challenge everybody out there to suggest that this has to be a key issue when we fix unemployment at the end of coronavirus and coming out of coronavirus. We have to not only get people employed, but this is a unique opportunity to get people employed with real careers that have a living wage. And this may be a great opportunity to make multiple changes along the way that can both help people and help the economy. So things that we have to consider, do we raise the minimum wage? Do we give incentives or penalize employers to help them get to a higher wage or not? Do we maybe put laws on salary caps? Uh, Salaries used to be where a CEO made 15 times the lowest employee. Now we have some CEOs making 3,000 times the lowest employee. Or do we re-empower unions in this country? I mentioned in the last episode, Netherlands pays workers at McDonald's over $22 per hour, and they do not have a minimum wage. It is not necessary there. What they have are strong unions with 80% of people in the country in unions, and unions can actively bargain and bargain well with employers to get a bigger share of the pie. Maybe coming out of this, we form stronger unions, and we take these people who are unemployed and work them into a situation where unions get brought back again in the United States to really be able to represent workers. The fact is, though, worker wages wages have been undercut for the last 30 years, and that set up a lot of this situation. Over 60% of Americans are on the verge of poverty at any time. They're one paycheck away, and now we have over half the country that's not in the workforce, or just under half the country, rather, that's not in the workforce. These are major problems. Julia, you wanted to add something?
1: Yeah, I had a
3: question. Um, with unemployment insurance kind of being this huge thing everyone's going towards and wanting to gain, um, how could someone be seeking or willing to accept work when it could compromise their health and then being, I guess, held accountable or not being eligible for it because of that reason, when this isn't just personal issues, this is an issue that kind of expands societies. I mean, it, it's global. Like, how, how, do you, how do you go about that then?
0: Yes. That's a fantastic question. There's no good answer to it. It's politics. And it's a question of how do we play through these politics in states where there are governments that blame the unemployed for their situation. They might not care very much about people being in those circumstances. Good governments can care a lot more. Good governments can do a lot more. Angela, you want to add something?
1: Yes. Um, so I think in order to understand how a lot of minorities and a lot of unemployed are being left out, it's important to understand how flawed our capitalist decision making has been thus far, meaning that in the Great Recession, you know, job losses were spread out over more time. But in the midst of this pandemic, we now have like this unprecedented surge in unemployment insurance claims over a very short period of time, which has clearly exposed a critical issue. The fact that we have not taxed our corporations enough. Our unemployment insurance trust funds are low due to our reluctance to basically tax businesses. The unemployment insurance program is funded primarily through federal and state taxes assessed on employers. Now let's take Amazon, for example. Amazon has paid a federal income tax rate of 1.2% which is about 13, I believe, 13 percentage points lower than the average American's 2019 tax rate. So from the very beginning, we actually created a system that prioritized massive corporate tax cuts at the expense of prioritizing ways to strengthen our social safety net. And in times of crisis such as this one, we definitely pay the price for it. But the ones who pay the price for it the most actually are minorities. You brought up uh, Reagan previously and how he blamed the lazy people, the unemployed, for their own personal decision-making. And bearing in mind that minorities have been excluded from unemployment benefits, it's still fascinating how, during this pandemic, Republicans continue to politicize racial misconceptions about unemployment and welfare. For example, when Republican Senator Ron Johnson claimed that he's basically worried about COVID benefits will incentivize people to not show up for work, he essentially echoed Reagan's defamatory concept of quote-unquote welfare queens, which is used to describe a Black mother who chooses to not work and she instead collects welfare from the government. So now more than ever, it's important to remember that you know as the government tied social rights to workforce participation, It absolutely excluded minorities given that full-time work for wages was not common for them.
0: Absolutely. Fantastic points and leads into the next focus that I want to have, which is on racism. Before we get to that, though, you did bring up a central concept that is going across this episode, and I think it's really going across uh, my podcast in general. It's the question of what's more important, people or money? What's more important, the businesses, the corporations, the wealthy investors, or the citizens? And the fact is, neither of them has to be more important. We can have a balanced system, but we do not now. And your example is a fantastic one. Right now, the system's unbalanced because we really need to look at big employers paying in more to unemployment insurance because we have these high unemployment numbers. The big employers are getting massive benefits out of our society. They are among the winners. I mentioned that capitalism has winners and losers, the workers on the low end are often among the losers, and we need to have a tax system that appropriately helps those people. It is not a redistribution of wealth per se, it's making sure that all the wealth doesn't get distributed toward the top in what many people see as problematic ways. And let's talk about racism here, too, and just the issue of race, not racism per se. But I want to spend a little bit of time on race and youth and unemployment and how some groups are inordinately affected by unemployment. We do have what is often called systemic racism in unemployment. It is not that people necessarily look at someone and say, I am not going to hire them because of their skin type, although arguably that does still happen. More importantly, though, we see it in the big picture numbers. And what we have is in normal circumstances on a year-to-year, day-to-day basis, Black Americans are twice as likely to be unemployed as white Americans. If the white American unemployment rate is 4%, the black American unemployment rate will average 8%. Hispanics are 50% more likely to be unemployed than white Americans. So white Americans 4%, Hispanics 6%, black Americans 8%. There might be some personal discrimination in there, but most of that is not active discrimination per se. It's systemic racism. It's based in poverty and the fact that more black and Hispanic people, especially in city situations, urban situations, are coming out of poverty places. It's the fact that the people who are black and Hispanic have poor educational opportunities. Compared to white Americans. It's the fact that our educational opportunities are based on property taxes, which skews things toward white Americans. When you're not born into poverty, and when you get a better education, you have a better chance to get and keep a better job. And the higher end you go on the job pyramid, the less likely you are to end up unemployed one or more times in your lifetime. People at the lower end of the job period are more likely to end up unemployed. And what we see are a lot more Black and Hispanic Americans who are unemployed because of that. That is a major problem. That is a problem of poverty, a problem of education. It's a systemic problem. And unemployment protection is one of the places where we have to focus on fixing that. It's only one of them. There's a lot more to it, but it certainly comes into this category. And then youth unemployment and youth employment in general is a major problem. We are no longer in a place where college students can come out of school and get a good job. This, uh, we're now seeing the first generations, millennials and Gen Z, who are unlikely to ever make more money than their parents. Throughout the course of American history, since economists started keeping these numbers, every new generation is more likely to make more money than their parents. Millennials and Gen Zs about the last 20 years are not. Your generation has lived through the 2008 recession. You're now living through another one in 2020. People coming out of college in 2008 did not have the same chance to get jobs that people coming out in 2005 did. And many of those people, 12 years later, still haven't recovered. They are still doing gig work. They are still in underpaid jobs compared to where someone 10 years earlier would have been at that point in their careers. You're now coming out of college, I'm very sorry to say, at a point where if you're lucky, you'll get a good job, but you're going to have to have luck on your side. A couple of years ago, before coronavirus hit, one of the saddest stats I've ever heard came out. And it talked about the idea that if you want to be successful as a college student, I believe this was in 2018, you need two things when you graduate. You need no debt, which means your parents were able to pay for your school. And you need parents who can cover you for a year or two while you do unpaid internships or lightly paid work that gets you experience in your field. That's employers exploiting you as you come out. That is a nasty situation to be in. Brian, you wanted to add something?
2: Yeah, I had a question about higher education, kind of the role it plays within unemployment because I know that during the last recession a record amount of people actually went back to school or went to school for a higher education degree and that's kind of why we have a student loan crisis before the coronavirus happened. I was just wondering do you think that there's going to be more of a market for um, graduate degrees, PhDs, professional degrees um, in this climate so that you have more I guess, not necessarily experience and more like education on your side, because I know for a fact like our university is pushing graduate programs and they have a sale on them for 50% off. So uh, I think it's really interesting. Do you think that um, higher, like the market for a bachelor's degree is going to be diminished because more people are going to want to, in a way, kind of buy more time to hopefully get a better job with a higher degree?
0: It is a fantastic question, and I don't know that there is a good answer for it. So it is something that we're going to have to wait and see. You are absolutely correct, though. Loyola is among many schools that are basically putting a monetary discount on their graduate programs. And they're doing it for a number of reasons. The first is to help students, and they're really marketing it to Loyola graduates, but to anyone can take advantage of it. They're doing it to help students who may not get jobs and give students a way to get themselves educated and get themselves more marketable right out of the box at the same time though schools are facing budget gaps and trying to figure out ways to keep students in the door what that's going to turn into when it comes time for jobs is a really tough question i personally have never been a fan of master's degrees without a purpose. I think that if you're going to get a master's degree, it needs to be something that's going to help you in your career. And if you know why you're getting a master's degree and it fulfills some career goal, that's fantastic. And that makes a lot of sense to get it. Um, other than that, I have told students in the past, be careful. or Your master's degree and the money you spend on it is going to make you a more educated barista. And I think that is a risk that is out there with so many people unemployed. Now, I do want to come back to this at the end, though, because it does not have to be that way. We can create more opportunities for people, but it's going to take work. And that's kind of setting up our last segment, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Angela, did you want to follow up here?
1: Yes, just to briefly confirm, um, when looking into the 2019 and 2020 unemployment rates by race and age, uh, evidence from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics actually confirms everything you brought up so far. Unemployment rates of African-Americans and Hispanics uh, are significantly higher compared to those of whites, and notably in the threshold between 16 to 34 years old. That's a bright young workforce we're talking about. And when looking at the unemployment insurance trends, the same trend follows. Unemployment insurance excludes the individuals more prone to unemployment because the government's way of dealing with low unemployment insurance trust fund balances has focused on tightening eligibility requirements and limiting benefits.
0: First, let me just say I love it when students in class are here, fact check me on things, which is fantastic. Thank you very much. It also happens to help if I was right about the fact in the first place. So that's great. I'll I'll admit it if I'm wrong, but it sounds like this was a a good one. And I'd actually done my research in advance. Imagine that. Um, But second, yeah, that's, uh, you know, just confirming the problem that's out there. That's putting even better numbers on the problem that's out there. Julia.
3: I was just going to ask because we're talking a lot about college students and what's going to happen to them. I was just curious. I recently read how I believe the house is trying to implement like a loan forgiveness program since all this is kind of going on in the midst of it. How either effective do you think it will be or what is the reality of it actually happening? Because I believe it was like loan forgiveness of $10,000 per student who has the debt, but I'm not entirely sure. I just briefly read it not long ago, like a few days ago.
0: Good question. There are a lot of loan forgiveness ideas that have been floated out there. I'm not sure what's in the new house program specifically. I've seen states and federal suggestions of loan forgiveness for frontline workers, for healthcare and emergency workers in particular. Uh, Some suggestions for even grocery store workers and people in food service, restaurants, and people who are in picking our food, growing our food. taking care of our meat production, things like that. Those could certainly be great possibilities. There have also been politicians who have floated complete loan forgiveness. I don't think those have gone anywhere so far, but in our new economic climate, I can imagine that that is going to come back up. And that is, of course, an exceptionally partisan political issue. That's something that is incredibly important. Um, Also, you need to remember that there are still fees charged on loans for unemployed people. There's some forgiveness of loan costs, but not entire forgiveness of loans during these times. And that is another issue that is out there students are often forgotten here and it's something where it's important to keep this in the news keep this in people's faces as much as possible that is going to be an issue student loans and student costs are another thing i want to look at as we work toward a conclusion here i want to jump back in and talk briefly about where we are at now get back to unemployment in the big picture a little bit more. There is a growing understanding that things are not going to return to quote unquote normal anytime soon. There are a variety of different economists, including the Fed chair, who have come out and said, this is going to be an issue for a long time. We are not going to recover quickly opening the economy is not going to bring all of these jobs back. It's going to take a few weeks to know, but right now what we're seeing is that for the states that are reopening slowly or in some cases quickly, while there are some jobs returning, unemployment numbers are still going up every week. More people are still losing jobs. And we're not looking at the medium and long term here there are going to be a lot more job losses coming in the fall. A number of big businesses, including airlines, hotels, other major industries, were bailed out in the first and second relief packages. And most of those bailouts, airlines in particular, end in September. Airlines were given money with the qualification that they had to keep people on the payroll but that qualification ends in September and we're likely to see major airline layoffs in September. I talked in the last episode about the hotel industry. Convention hotels, big hotels in big cities are now shut down through June. They're starting to shut down through July. And if you look at Illinois as an example, in Illinois, hotel conventions can't open until phase five. Phase five requires a vaccine. Or testing, tracing and treatment that will keep people safe. That means we're probably not going to see big conventions coming back. We're probably not going to see traffic to vacation destinations, Las Vegas, things like that, until sometime mid to late next year at the earliest. That's going to be an enormous number of job losses that we're going to have to deal with. And that's not just airlines and hotels and similar businesses. That's all of the support businesses that feed them, all of the support businesses that survive off of working with those industries. And this is all coming through in a couple months. September is simply not that far away. Just this weekend, I saw the CEO of Boeing, and he had a couple of very sad stats. This was the first month that Boeing had zero orders for new planes. That's just one industry, but it's indicative of a lot of what's happening in the world. And the CEO of Boeing also suggested in his expert opinion, he thought it was likely at least one of the major airlines will go under this fall. Once this bailout ends, uh, we could see airlines and other businesses going under. And, of course, we've talked about the early opening. Unfortunately, there's a very high likelihood that early openings will lead to a stronger resurgence of coronavirus in the fall. And if you listen to the experts, Dr. Fauci has said this, Dr. Bright said this before Congress yesterday – there are serious serious concerns about a combined flu and coronavirus season next fall especially since it's unlikely we're going to have a corona vaccine by the fall the flu in a light year kills 17 or 18,000 people i believe it was last year the flu killed almost 80,000 people by itself and that's a vaccinated flu, and we're going to see the flu and coronavirus playing off each other like crazy and causing immense problems in our healthcare system and immense problems for sick individuals. The fact is, we're unlikely to really start our return to normal until we either have widespread vaccines or a solid combination of testing, tracing, and treatment. That's what we're looking at before we start moving forward. Angela, you had a thought.
1: I did. Uh, You briefly brought up bank behavior, and I think it's a matter that's especially important to consider at the moment. Now, Bank of America continues to charge maintenance fees on checking accounts every month. Now, bearing in mind that this is a period of great financial difficulty and unemployment, banks should remove all fees they charge. It's absolutely absurd that they are not doing that. If you're charged a fee, what you're going to do is you're going to call your bank, explain the absurdity of being charged maintenance fees while you're out of work, but nicely. And what your bank representative will do is they're going to waive your fees for three months only, which means that after three months, you may need to follow up with another phone call explaining your employment situation should you continue to remain unemployed.
0: This is one of those places where the United States is way behind other countries. And while it's not directly unemployment related, it is important for people who are unemployed. We didn't freeze rent. We didn't freeze other payments that are out there. We didn't freeze utility payments. We didn't help people with any of these things. Most of the industrialized world did. Most of the industrialized world froze student loans if they existed, froze other loans and credit cards if they were out there. And that doesn't mean the bank doesn't get paid. That means the government helps you with your payments and the government works with those banks to help you with your payments. And then we move forward after that. So right now, you're absolutely right. If you want to freeze those things, you have to call your bank. You have to explain your situation. Most but not all states, most but not all lenders are willing to freeze your mortgage payments, for instance. Rental's much harder. Without any laws about that, every owner of an apartment building gets to decide themselves whether they are going to allow you to freeze your rent. They can't kick you out. There are laws saying that they can't evict you, but that doesn't mean that you won't owe a lot of back rent very quickly when this thing ends. So it is adding insult to injury and making it even tougher for us to get out of this hole at the end. Excellent point. Brian, you wanted to add something too.
2: I am thinking of this in terms of the election and it's hard to still remember that this is an election year and, you know, in a normal scenario we'd be seeing, you know, Ton of fighting between the two nominees, I mean we still see that in some ways, but not as much. I mean enormous rallies for both candidates. so I had a question slash comment for you, Dr. Endless. Um, how does this obviously right now I think this fares very well for a future President Joe Biden uh, with the November election, um, but if things somehow were to get better, or if at least the public perception of coronavirus were to improve, thinking that you know there isn 't that it isn't as much of an issue. Um, how do you think that this could help Trump in some way in acknowledging that he could take credit for what he perceived to be his work on this crisis? So how do you think that this kind of will impact um, the election? Or is it too re- is, is it too early to kind of speculate right now?
0: Fantastic question. It's tough to speculate, but very, very clearly, that's what Donald Trump is looking for. That's what he is working on right now. He wants to set up the perception that he is helping us through this crisis. There have been a lot of reports to the contrary. Uh, Most scientific basis suggests that the government has done almost everything wrong so far in dealing with coronavirus. Policy-wise, there have been an enormous number of flaws and flubs and problems along the way. But Trump's biggest hope right now is to reopen the economy and to hope to see some recovery and to take credit for that recovery. And on the other side, we're looking at Joe Biden. Biden's actually, I think, coming out with a lot more programs than Trump is. And I want to talk about that a little bit as we move forward. But he's in a tough situation, too, because it's hard for him to get press time, where Trump gets press time every day. It's hard for Biden to get as much press attention on things. And he's almost counting on the fact at the moment that Trump tends to bury himself when he gets press time in the last few weeks. So it's a very back and forth, and it's going to be a very political situation. It's good that you brought that up. So what are the fixes to these problems long-term and how do we help get people employed again? We have models for this. This has happened before with the Great Depression, in particular in the United States. There are international models, there are economic theories that deal with this. What we need is jobs training combined with extended unemployment, And we need to start looking at jobs programs. This is something going back to the politics that Joe Biden has already started talking about. There have been a lot of comparisons of the situation to the Great Depression, and one of the ways out might be what's now being called a Rooseveltian solution, following the model of FDR and the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, under his new deal. The WPA during the recession employed millions of job seekers, mostly unskilled men at that point in time, people with very low skill sets. And they were employed to carry out public works projects, including the construction of public buildings and roads. There was a federal art project that put artists back to work. There was a Civilian Conservation Corps that put 2.5 million largely unskilled men to work in federal forests. By the way, when I focus on men here, that's not a sexist thing. That's just who they focused on in the 1930s because there weren't many women in the workforce. There was the CWA, the Civil Works Administration, that put 4.3 million people back to work. And one that's not remembered very often, the Ohio Plan, had local and state governments funded by the federal government, bought closed factories and reopened them to put people back to work doing manufacturing jobs. All of these things are possible now, possibly with very modern twists to them that we'll talk about in a second. These are all ideas that were first put forth and popularized by economist John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes was writing at about that time, talking about how governments can help when these economic catastrophes happen. Keynes was popularized and kind of in pop culture. His theory was digging ditches. People know Keynes as the guy who said that if people are unemployed, the government should hire them to dig ditches. And if they are still unemployed afterwards, the government should keep them on the payroll to fill those ditches back in. That's not actually what Keynes said. It's a very simplified version. Keynes, though, said that the government should take responsibility in these situations and needs to create jobs, needs to give stimulus. We talk about stimulus all the time now that helps create jobs. And these shouldn't be just any jobs. Preferably, they're going to be jobs that help the economy. They should be economically positive. And for the most part, that means jobs that deal with infrastructure. Not bridges to nowhere, but needed infrastructure and focusing on either repairing or building that needed infrastructure. For Keynes, when there's an economic crisis, when things are going bad, the government should go into debt to create stimulus to help bring the economy back. And then the important part that most politicians forget, once the economy is running well again, you'll have more people who are employed. They will be spending more. They will be creating more jobs. The government won't have to employ people because there will be new jobs or renewed jobs for all of those employees. And those people will be back to paying taxes. And then you do have to pay off that debt afterwards during the good time. This is not just spending money without paying it off in the future. For those who have been following along, this sounds really familiar to things that Biden's talking about, and now he's working with Bernie Sanders on them. They've got the Joint Commission for Planning for the Future. One of the focuses that I personally think would be quite effective is working with Bernie and AOC in a green jobs program and taking some of those progressive ideas, it doesn't have to be the exact things that were talked about a year or two ago when the green jobs program started, but there is an enormous amount of potential infrastructure in green jobs. So the government could hire people to repair roads that need repairing. The government could hire people to work on new transportation, trains, airfare, whatever the case might be. The government could hire people to enhance internet capacity. One of the things that coronavirus has exposed is a lot of our population doesn't have equal access to the internet. And the government can hire people to work on new green jobs infrastructure projects like wind and solar and even nuclear. I'm a fan of nuclear. Nuclear can be very safe and can be a very clean, cheap alternative when it is done correctly. Those could be FDR-style Rooseveltian jobs programs where if we have the political will, We can come out of this better and we can put people back to work as a country, not as a bunch of political parties, not as one group of people fighting each other over money, but we can really focus on people and come back. One final thing I wanted to talk about here is the idea of national service. And this is one that hasn't come up as much from politicians, but uh, David Brooks wrote an editorial about it in the New York Times this weekend. And personally, I've been talking about this for quite a while. Other countries do this, and I think this is a fantastic idea, particularly for people coming out of college. This is one of those things that could massively help college students. Think about it as AmeriCorps, joining AmeriCorps, or Teach for America, or even potentially the military, but without the military side of it. What we could choose to do is set up programs that pay people who are just out of school to do needed work. And in addition to paying them, we can forgive student loan debt as part of their commitment to perhaps a two year commitment to do needed work someplace in the country. Or we could do a ROTC equivalent, where their students' uh, state or community colleges are paid for in exchange for a couple of years of service after college. This is a model that works in many parts of the world. A number of European countries do this. France will give you free, quote unquote, it's never free. France will give you government-paid education through medical school. But in exchange for that education, if you're a doctor, for instance, you make a commitment to work for the government in a hospital for several years after you come out of school. You make commitments to work towards society. Cuba does the exact same thing. A country with an economy that's one one hundredth, one one thousandth of ours, a tiny economy. And Cuba pays for all students to go to school and then requires public service of them and afterwards these are programs that have examples in many parts of the world rich and poor and they work incredibly well they put students to work they are doing incredibly useful jobs for society they are getting great job training and they are getting their education and or their college loans paid for by doing that so job programs and national service are just two examples of the things that we could be doing right now or as soon as we are in a place that we can when society is safe to open back up, that would enormously help people who are unemployed, people who are, excuse me, people of color in situations where they're at the lower end of the economic spectrum, and students too. Those are just a few of the ideas that are out there. Julia, you want to pitch in?
3: Yeah, I was just going to ask, with something as large scale as national service, um, one of the issues that I kind of think of when hearing that then is there are people who as much as they would want to do that aren't allowed because of medical conditions. Now, I might be mistaken, but it's like the draft system as well. But I'm aware that if you have an underlying medical condition, something like asthma, Um, You aren't allowed to not only get drafted, but I don't even think you're allowed to voluntarily join something like the National Service or ROTC or like military programs because of that, because you are in an unstable position to be in those settings. And so I just, I'm, I guess, kind of concerned with how that would work on something kind of like for loan forgiveness and things like that. So I just kind of wanted to see what your opinion would be for that.
0: Great question. The nice part about national service is it does not have to be physical service in any way, shape, or form. If you're an accountant, go off and do accounting for some group for a nonprofit group maybe, for a community group. If you had a business education, go off and help people start businesses and get involved in that, get involved in city or local government in some ways. So there can be jobs across the spectrum if we look at national service. We tend to think of AmeriCorps Teach for America. I gave those examples as places where you have to travel. And, yes, there are some physical requirements to that, but you don't necessarily have to travel. And frankly, you think about national service, if it's really national, we may not want the costs of people traveling. You can do it in your own community. You can benefit your own community or nearby communities that have greater need than yours. So it's a great question. Thank you for clarifying that. Brian, you had something to add.
2: Yeah, I really um, enjoy your thoughts and opinions about you know the idea of national service. Um, my concern slash question for you, Dr. Endless, would be how can the government market national service on the same level that it would when it go, when they send members of the military to, you know, um, under, under-resourced communities to, like, kind of promote, like, the idea of, like, going to the military to get your education paid for. Like, how can the government kind of promote national service on the same level, and how does it market it to certain individuals?
0: First, you're like five steps ahead of me, and I love that. So I'm going to take that as a hypothetical question, and in this case, I will agree to speak hypothetically and just take a shot at it. There's nothing special about my answer here, just some basic thoughts. But I would rhetorically ask any of you, if you were going to college and I told you that you can go to college for no cost if you agree to sign up for a two-year national service program after college... How many college students wouldn't take that? I think it would actually be a pretty simple marketing task, and I'd also do it in the exact same way that you do college funding right now. You fill out your FAFSA, and as part of your FAFSA, you sign up for national service if you wanna go to college at no cost to you. And it also may save some students from having to work as much during college and let them focus more on their education. Or if you're working, you're just working for extra spending money and not putting every cent into paying for it. So, yeah, that's a significant positive that's there. I think also we'd have to deal with the potential systemic racism Aspects of it, and we would have to account for those and set up the system such that it is able to seek equality of opportunity across different races and not be biased toward one group or another. So, we may have people coming into the system who have lesser educational opportunities before college. And by the way, it would be wrong if this is just for college, we should be doing the exact same thing for trade schools. We should be doing this for people who don't necessarily need to go to college. We've got an older population of key laborers, of electricians, of construction specialists, of others, of plumbers, and all of those people will need to be replaced by new generations as they go along, and we should absolutely be focusing on those types of jobs that don't necessarily need a college education, but that make for a great career when people go into them. We'll go to Angela for the second to last word here. I'll take the last word after that, but what do you have for us, Angela?
1: Thank you, Dr. Endless. I really like that you're concluding with Keynes, actually, because Keynes placed great emphasis on ideas. He claimed that it is the ideas of economists and political philosophers that are more powerful than is commonly understood, Moreover, that it is the ideas and not the vested interests which are dangerous for good and evil, quote-unquote. So do you think this pandemic will drastically change our ideas regarding the economy and our social policies?
0: Do I think it will? That is a wonderful question. I am hopeful, and frankly, I think it's necessary for this pandemic to change our ideas. That's my personal opinion. I think if this pandemic doesn't change the direction that we're going in, we are setting ourselves up for a much worse situation in the future. That being said, we've got some heavily entrenched politics and entrenched interests who are going to be fighting back against these ideas. I think one of the key things that we have to look at is how do we convince the groups who are currently economically at the top of the system that this is in their best interests? And one of the things that we're seeing now is we might have some openings to do that. We now have major corporations that are being shut down because of this pandemic and that are not able to do business. This pandemic is clearly showing a weak underbelly in the american economy and i think it's important that we have a balanced response now a typical response would be overbalanced toward big business and would ignore individuals i think we need to have an extreme focus on individuals on individual citizens and on helping ordinary people but at the same time If you ignore the interests of big businesses, this isn't going to succeed because big businesses will tank the effort. You have to have things that apply to both sides. You have to have things that make this successful and make this beneficial for both sides, or this is going to get caught up in political and economic power squabbles, and it's simply not going to succeed. I also thank you for that question, because I think it's a great segue into our conclusion. And I want to wrap up here with a few comments. First of all, this is not hopeless. This is not a hopeless situation. Rather, this is a time for national leadership. Personally, I don't think we've had much national leadership in the last few years, but I think we have a great opportunity for new leaders to step up right now. We have a big opportunity for change in our government, but I think that people of good conscience need to inform themselves, and we need to force change. We cannot wait for change to happen. We cannot expect other people to make change. We need to get out there and we need to force it. We need to do a number of things. We need to advocate for needed programs. For my progressive friends, and I have a lot of progressive friends, former students, students, please consider that a lot of what we need, a lot of the needed programs, are going to massively move a progressive agenda forward. We're already seeing that in things that Joe Biden is saying on his website and his working with Bernie and AOC and many of the other progressive leaders in Congress right now. The things that we need happen to fit very well with that agenda, but we're also still going to have capitalism after this. We're still gonna have big business. It's not gonna be the old corporatist approaches that got us here. Even if you describe yourself as a hardcore socialist, I encourage you to look at this as an opening for significant change. Not everything some of my friends might want, but I think we can significantly move in a very positive direction. I wanna encourage everyone to get out and be loud, but also be very realistic. I've mentioned the Biden and Bernie coalition as a great example of this with Biden bringing in a lot of that leadership that's been moving this country to the left. And I think that's a great thing. I also want to encourage people to be as positive as possible. We have been building over the last 30 years into a country that can only talk to each other negatively. We react to the other side. We don't talk anymore. We don't put out positive proposals. And I think we need to move back toward that positivity. Trump has already shown us that he will blame anyone he can find and avoid taking responsibility at any cost. What I'd suggest we need to do is push for real leadership that shows an understanding that this situation is bad and that focuses on real solutions that will work. Leadership that puts out proposals that can help the majority, not just the corporations. And we, each individual, need to push our politicians to focus on the idea that people are more important than money. So what can each of you do? Get out and vote. Register to vote. Get others to register to vote push for mail-in voting so we can vote safely and hopefully get the largest number to the polls so that we can move back toward real democracy. Turn the Senate, take the presidency, and give a mandate to new leadership to use this crisis as an opportunity to move forward in a more people-centric direction. With that, I want to conclude Angela, Brian, Julia, thank you very much for being on the program. Fantastic comments. I really appreciate it. Please stay safe, folks. And thank you once again for joining us on The Endless Files.